wasn't aware she had a book. At, uh... Oh, no, no, sorry. I, I was talking about the uh, LGBT book. Oh, I yeah. Read. Okay, cool. Well, we'll get to that at the no, end. No, no. Oh, John Bailey does not have a book. He is 25. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that doesn't stop people. Tara Lipinski had a book, so who knows? Yeah, uh, Paris Hilton had a book too, right? Yeah, well, book is a very loose statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, a series of pages. A series of pages that were sequentially numbered, I think. <laughs> half of which was not written by her, and the other half no. were literally just pictures. <laughs> That's, that was her talent, is that she took up space and time. <laughs> She's literally the gravity of authors. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've got to start, I guess, by complimenting you on uh, the, the new Facebook profile pic that you posted today. The, the, <laughs> the shirtless toothbrush uh, showing the world that you are, in fact, keeping healthy and keeping good hygiene in these desperate times. I felt like it was very important because I was like, <laughs> I know so many people, like, I feel like I've done a lot of, like, Zoom talks or virtual hangouts where, like, pretty much everyone's just like, I'm just going to crop from the neck up so you don't see that I clearly haven't showered. <laughs> Still have pajamas that I've worn for three days. <laughs> I, I honestly find it a victory that I, I'm still putting on jeans every day. Like that, that feels to me like I, I am still joining the parade of life at this point because I'm putting that effort into it. See, that is good of you. I'm pr- I have not. Well, I put on jeans to leave the house. <laughs> yeah, and that works too. I mean, that's, that's, that means it's, it's, that is the equivalent of uh, church clothes, I think, in this environment right now. <laughs> put on your Sunday best, Calvin. That means pants. <laughs> what I catch off knees? This is crazy. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh god! I was going to say that seeing seeing the new uh, profile pic reminded me of uh, like back in the time when I was still in the closet, but like slowly venturing out. Like one of the ways I was is realizing that I had developed a virtual crush on an old friend from college that we were Facebook buddies. Because I found, like, among the pics that he had uh, in one of his pictures folders, this incredible picture of him shirtless, brushing his teeth next to the shower. And I had never had occasion to see him shirtless before. And after a while, I recognized the pattern of I kind of just kept going back to that picture over and over and over. And that was kind of one of my first indications of, huh, there's, there's something here a little bit. Yeah, maybe maybe start listening to that voice. Interesting. Also, why did he just have that picture? I, I don't know, honestly. <laughs> I, I assume it was a night of good hygiene with the boyfriend, perhaps. But... Uh, <laughs> Or, or maybe a public service announcement for the rest of Facebook. Not sure, but or or maybe he was just trying to tell the world that uh, through the power of my lack of shirt, I am here to fight off the cavity creeps. <laughs> I, I, I'm glad you get that reference because that's also from like mid '80s. So, <laughs> well, as a fellow old, I also understand. <laughs> just going to throw out random references to crest. Uh, toothpaste commercials from Saturday morning cartoons back in the day, back when this used to interrupt the snorks with the cavity creeps. <laughs> hey, we could talk Schoolhouse Rock all day as well. <laughs> junction, junction, what's your function? Hell yeah. 
but really? it, yeah, it, it, it's weird that it, it, one of many weird things that as it was coming out that I realized that, yeah, that's that's kind of a turn on, I guess, is is proper dental hygiene observed as well as realizing that someone that I was in choir with has one hell of a ripped bod, too. <laughs> it's always so funny how that stuff crops up. Like, I remember um, there was this, like, uh, paper that is now extinct, like, pretty much most of these papers are, The Village Voice, mm-hmm. which is that big New York paper. And I were in the back, they would always have those, like, um, the, uh, what do you call those, like, the those those phone sex ads, basically? Oh, yeah. And so there was, so there were like pages and it was like a lot of women. And then there's one that was just all guys and they're all like shirtless. And I remember at one point I cut out a page and I like hid it in this book and I would like keep looking at it every now and again. And I'd be like, I don't know. Like for some reason, I just, they seem really appealing to me. Like yeah. not that I would have fall, but it was more their like shirtlessness and their like, you know, basic sexuality. And it's like, I just never clicked in my head for years. Well, mm-hmm. until you know, obviously it came out and then I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's why <laughs> and also hit it in a book because I knew it was wrong. <laughs> was your, uh, Archimedes discovering the principle of buoyancy moment where you just jumped up in the bathtub and yelled, Eureka! Yeah. And naked, <laughs> like you do. And then I brushed my teeth. So <laughs> yes, making sure again, that the world knew that you were clean on top and on bottom. So exactly. <laughs> Being top and bottom, which is also one of the personal ads you probably read in Village Voice. Back in the <laughs> and on that note, we should start the show, shouldn't we? <laughs> so this is the Three Strikes Year Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network. Give me one minute here to do the propers. Episode number 22, the Clayton Kershaw episode of the Three Strikes podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. And I guess, I guess we'll put in quotation marks comedian at this point now because comedian stop it. I'm, I'm i'm definitely still a comedian as long as comedian is still a thing at this point now because that's a, what's more up in the air yeah i guess that is true i think now like stand the stand-up part may now no longer apply but you, yeah. you're your podcast comedian comedic writer mm-hmm. comedian can apply to a lot of things yeah i, I am still a purveyor of mirth no question about it it's, it's just a matter <laughs> of Will that mirth ever be in front of a microphone again? And I hope it is. Like that'd be nice, wouldn't it? To, to dream of, yeah. of that in the future. I do. I mean, I dream of holding oh, not even just a wireless. I want a wire microphone. I don't oh, want God. a wireless. I know it's connected to something physical. <laughs> Very important to me. <laughs> and just in, connected to something physical in the metaphorical way that you connect to every audience you play. How about that first um, way? <laughs> The other voice you are hearing laughing in the background right now is one of my longest-running comedy pals from my New York days, Calvin Cato, co-host of the Playable Characters podcast, uh, which means that I have now fully punched my Playable Characters redeem uh, card. Redeemer card? Is that a thing? I don't know, but it is now. That's true, uh, yeah, because you had Brian on before. Yeah, yeah, which I didn't think was ever going to happen because neither of you are technically baseball fans. But nonetheless, you've been on the show, so that's awesome. Look at that! And I told you, I told you before, I, there was a Jeopardy um, category that was all baseball pitches, and I got all the right except for the changeup. I was so proud of myself. I knew spitball. Yeah. I knew curveball. There's another one. Oh my god. Uh, shoot, what was it? Damn it. They mentioned Southpaw. That was a uh, thing. I knew yep, that. I was like, I know everything. Look at Did you! 
bitches. <laughs> you are practically John Smoltz at this point, which I don't think you're going to get that reference, but, that reference, but I'm going to pretend I do. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, I'll, again, I'll put it in quotation marks. It's a compliment, maybe. <laughs> he, he is the uh, lead analyst on the Fox Sports broadcast of the World Series, but he also spends every game just complaining about the fact that players are born when they when they were as opposed to born in 1970. Back when uh, he played, which was the best time, apparently. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I did want to ask about that. So, uh, were what were they? What were the clues in Jeopardy that, that they were giving you to identify each pitch? Were they um, like verbal clues, or were they showing the grips of each pitch? Um, so it was a mix of verbal clues and grips, hmm. which is why I was very surprised that I knew that. I, yeah. I guess I must. Yeah, I'm impressed in via osmosis like because years ago i i did play a baseball video game for nintendo that was <laughs> that that's how long i cared about sports <laughs> <laughs> for the nes where you cranks out here but oh, yeah, yeah. I, they, they specified like the kinds of pitches and for some reason it always just seeps into my head so i just remembered like all of that like random stuff but and honestly, so when categories came on i was like okay because usually with jeopardy i know the easy one so i'm like oh yeah i'll know like the 200 clue and i'll know the 400 clue but the others i'm like look it's sports i don't know i'll just guess randomly knew all of them nice nice that's awesome and that that's honestly not a bad way of going about learning some of the parts of the game the more intricate parts and i can tell you as just an example that springs to mind uh there was a great Hall of Fame player named Vladimir Guerrero who played for the Montreal Expos and LA Angels back in the late 90s, early 2000s and just made the Hall of Fame two years ago. And he was famous for not really preparing at all for games for the most part. Like I remember reading a Sports Illustrated article. And again, this is a Sports Illustrated writer writing about a famous Dominican player. So there could well be some you know, white people looking down on the, the foreign other type here. So I guess throw that kind of grain of salt into it. But I specifically remember the, the Sports Illustrated article mentioning that his only preparation for every game was going on to either Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis and playing against that day's starting pitcher to get a sense of what he was throwing so he, <laughs> so he could know what he was going to see that afternoon or that evening. And then he'd go out and inevitably because – he could hit the ball like anywhere it was pitched. Like even if it was bounced, he was famous for getting hits off of that. And wow. uh, go two for three, three for four. And just people didn't know how to get him out. And so you are practicing in some small way, the Vladimir Guerrero method of baseball training. <laughs> so that is two hall of famers. I've compared you to in the span of the last five minutes. Well done, oh, sir. Yes. <laughs> for the Mets. I love it. Oh God! No, you're a Hall of Famer. You'll never play for the Mets. Sorry, that, that's just John <laughs> Ennis. My editor's going to hate that joke. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, longtime listeners, and I assume there are one or two of you to the podcast, have noted that my particular podcast probably is the least of the ones on all the Outsports Podcast Network ones, uh, which is a terrible sentence. But I'm halfway through, and I just got to dig my way out now. Uh, I probably mention. LGBT issues the least of any of the podcasts. And it's not because I don't have opinions. Like anybody who reads what I throw out there on the site knows I, I have things to say about it. It's, I mean, Calvin, I think you're familiar with this. When I talk baseball, I kind of get really excited and that's kind of my tunnel vision a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I did want to do at least one show where I spent most of the time at least talking about coming out and 
being LGBT and whatever else. Uh, and I couldn't think of any, any better guest than someone who I think of as my gay sensei, Calvin Cato. Uh, I, you really shouldn't, because I am a very terrible sensei. <laughs> <laughs> I am not good at it. Like, Beverly Hills Ninja kind of movie where I am Chris Farley trying to learn like, <laughs> the principles of, of, of gayness, I guess. Ooh, uh, let's talk about Beverly Hills Ninja. That was not a good movie. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that one I didn't even try. Like, Tommy Boy is incredible and still holds up. Uh, yes. I think I made it halfway through Black Sheep, and then Beverly Hills Ninja, yeah, was just like, I, I think I owe it to your memory not to watch this movie. Yeah, I remember watching it, I think, like, around when it came out, or maybe, like, a year afterwards when it was on, like, VHS. But it did. it was not good. And I don't think I've seen it since around then, so I don't want to watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> Completely skipped over the DVD Blu-ray revolution, and yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think when you enter uh, Beverly Hills Ninja streaming into Google, the only thing that pops up is, why? Yeah. <laughs> and for very good reason. I feel like that's like the uh, Joe Dirt of like SNL movies. Oh, God, you know, yeah, among yeah. many. Like the Joe Dirt, It's Pat... Night at the Roxbury. I mean, the superstar. Hell, we could fill an entire oh, podcast I just with that. Oof, I'm Jesus. sorry? I forgot about that movie. Jesus. You're lucky. Oh. Yeah. Honestly, I never got the Mary Catherine Gallagher character ever. Like, Molly Shannon is is funny and is capable of being really funny. But, like, I, and I, yeah, I knew people who went to Catholic school. And I still just, that went over, either went over my head or just was like, that's just not enough to really make me laugh. Exactly. Like, I feel like it was one of those things where it was, like, weird for weirdness sake. And I feel like it would have been funnier if she were, like, a supporting character to something else. But as herself, I was always like, eh, it's okay. But I always just most sketches on any sort of improv comedy show where it's, like, the first time, like, oh, this is funny. And then every other time, it's, like, unless you really up yourself, it's just you're hitting the same beats. Yeah, it's. I think part of the problem with, with especially the SNL school of, of improv and sketches is not so much they don't have a problem coming up with funny ideas and funny premises. Uh, I just don't think you should require everyone to go for at least four or five minutes, and some hell even seven or eight minutes. That there are just only so many good ideas that can sustain themselves over that long, and you really, I would prefer it if you gave the performers leeway to just hit something for two minutes, get out, move on to the next thing. I, I, I think the quality of the show would be much more improved if, if they tried something closer to, I guess that's more of the Monty Python formula than, than SNL, but that's why Monty Python was great partly, I think. Exactly. And I feel like it's hard to, because SNL is so constrained by the limitations of it needs to be live. So yeah. like, because of that, like I, 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 part of me understands why the sketches have to be that long because obviously there's set changes, stuff that needs to go on behind the scenes. They have to still set up like new sets, set up video for like a digital content. But at the same time, it's still like, it, it would be better served if it was just like, just make it three minutes, have two stages rotating at once. And then just be like, okay, this, this one's over. We established a point, three minutes, just cut directly to the next one. And then cut to commercial. Yeah. More commercial. Good. Advertisers are happy. I would do that, but, you know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think that would make it a much better quality kind of show. And I also wonder, and jumping off of that, too, I wonder if it would be possible to, like, dedicate even a portion of that to even more minimalism, where you would have, like, the bare minimum of set dressing and props 
and then just rely on the performers more and trust them because uh, that's the way you come up in improv, right? Is, yeah. is just kind of on a bare stage with, with only a few accoutrements, I guess, to, to make people laugh and you just use yourself. I mean, that's, I mean, that's also what standup is in in many ways too. It is. It's just, it's so funny because it's so, it's such a shame that like SNL is so constrained by like its own mechanisms at this point. And because they're so built in, like, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's such a problem with like pretty much every industry that goes off for long enough, which is that like we have our rules now, everything's set. And so you can't really break the rules anymore because we're just like, this is how things are done. And you can't break out of that. Yeah. And uh, some might say that's the problem with certain parts of government as well. Ooh, did I get political? I think I did. Yeah. Week three of lockdown. Perhaps a, a college or two, or an electoral one, perhaps. I'm not sure. Maybe, just maybe. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. Ugh. So, uh, yeah. How did we get here? Uh, to, I don't to know either. Here. Yeah. But I'm glad we got here. That's that's good stuff. I am uh, too. It's, yeah. it's so weird to think about, like, like speaking of LGBT issues, this is going to be such a tangent and is only very tangentially related. But I um, had to do a summary of the Ramones, and so I had to, so it's the autobiography of Johnny Ramone, and so wow. I'm like the band from his point of view, and he's a huge baseball fan, which I did not know at all, like huge. And the idea was he saved all of his tickets up. So he was a huge Yankees fan because hmm. from. Queens, well, I guess Queens Mets fan. Yeah, that's. I, I guess that means if you're a punk from Queens, you root for the Yankees. Well, apparently he was a super Republican, so that's probably why. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, yeah. So when you think <laughs> punk and ra- raging against the system, you think super Republican and Steinbrenner. That makes sense. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where the story is going, and I'm excited to take this roller coaster journey, Calvin. <laughs> We're gonna keep going. Huge baseball fan, also. Pretty homophobic because, like, throughout the like autobiography, because it's his autobiography, there's just a lot of like weird, like, homophobic slurs throughout that are very that get more and more uncomfortable as you read them and are very mm-hmm. disappointing when you're like, oh, like you're supposed to be this whole punk icon, and you're supposed to be breaking the mold and everything, and like every other thing is like f word. He calls someone a queer. Like it's pretty not nice, <laughs> and I was very surprised because I did not have this picture of him. So. What? When did this book come out? Uh, uh, this has been 2003 or four. Okay. I want to yeah. say. I mean, that, that's certainly not, you know, these enlightened times. I mean, 2004 is when Bush ran on, you know, all the anti-gay marriage amendments and, and managed to win re-election. Yeah. So I, I guess it's not entirely outside that particular world. But, but yeah, as... As someone who was part of the punk scene, which I would imagine you had to run into a fair amount of outcast gay people uh, it, within that. Yeah, that's that's awful, honestly. Yeah, it, it was something that's so weird too because like his because uh, Joey Ramone is like super leftist and super liberal. So like it was just so interesting to like see and read that and like to like and oh, there's another part where he talks about affirmative action cost him his job. It's like really. I, I wish I could say this more intelligibly, but like it's just something that's so fascinating that I'm like, wow, you were pretty homophobic for someone. Who- <laughs> if I may, oh yes, uh, affirmative action cost him his job with the Ramones. Oh no, sorry, oh. not with the Ramones. He used to work as a construction worker. Okay, because I, I was going to say they found a black person who was better Ramone 
<laughs> they replaced it with an actual Ramon, so that was good. <laughs> Unfortunately, but, they thought uh, that it was Razor Ramon. So yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do there? I'll, I'll put the cherry on that Sunday. Why not? <laughs> But yeah, wow, so what, what are you writing this uh, summary for? I'm oh, sorry, say that again. What are you uh, doing this summary of the Ramones for? Oh, so it's for another podcast. Sorry for cheating on you, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> are you at, at this point in quarantine? We've got all got so much time to fill. I'm I'm surprised when I run into somebody who's not doing a podcast at this point. <laughs> it's listen. It's all podcasts. It's all Instagram Live. It's all Venmo. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's for like a French. She's doing a punk rock, punk rock podcast. So nice. um, she did one about um, the Sex Pistols that I wrote like a summary for them, and now I'm doing one for the Ramones. Did you know a lot about punk before you started this podcast at all? Uh, like a little bit. Like I mean, I, I was familiar with like the CBGB scene. Like so, like Talking Heads and like Blondie. I guess well, Blondie. I guess is punk. Technically, I think I guess it's more popish. Yeah, I, I think it's more, I think of them as more new wave and experimental. But I could certainly see why a punk crowd would get into either one of those. Yeah, like I guess for me, it's weird. Like I always lump that CBGB's crowd all into one. So like even the ones that I get, like again, like Bonnie, you're right. Like I guess they're more new wavey. But like at the time, they all started together. So I always classified them within that kind of like punk or genre breaking scene, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because they oh, were yeah. like small clubs and not like big arenas. They weren't like the Beatles. Like they were very alternative for that time. And they were definitely genre breaking. I will absolutely yeah. give you all that. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but yeah, but this is the first time I've really done like a full, like in-depth look into their lives. So it's just always like interesting to see. So like, for example, like with Sex Pistols, like I would say that they were pretty liberal and they've been, they were also like just a lot more reacting against a lot of like, the established like norms and how everyone needs to be like nice and prim and how sitcoms used to be very like sanitized and was very like nuclear family and no gay people and like black people had their roles as like maids or servants or whatever so like it's it's interesting to like read it from that context but like this autobiography was so much more interesting to read about how like someone who basically was a conservative republican ended up being the face of a punk scene that he almost didn't want to be a part of Mm -hmm. yeah like he did want to be a part of it, but in other ways, he was very much like he hated a lot of the punk musicians because he thought they were too liberal, and he like wasn't into like hanging out and the drinking and the drugs and the free love part because he basically had a girlfriend who then became his wife. So he was very like a family man doing punk. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is it's fascinating. Yeah, and it's not sports, so I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's what is more punk than I guess. A family man who hates all punks, really. We're getting deep here with this conversation, aren't we? We uh, really are. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll segue from uh, this, this discussion of punk uh, slightly into discussions of uh, kind of another little music incident that we both shared because uh, it, I, I was visiting New York City back uh, the third week of February, which, you know, looking back in retrospect, hell of a time to come visit New York, huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I planned that real well. Uh, give it the perfect time. <laughs> like, yeah, little bit. Uh, not entirely 
planned that way, but I'm, I'm certainly glad it worked out. But uh, yeah, I ran into Calvin. We hung out a couple times. And the, the first night we hung out was after a couple of your shows on Valentine's night in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And after kind of catching up after your last show and just kind of decompressing for a while, like out of blue, you say, so we go into a gay bar. And I said, <laughs> absolutely. Yes. Because uh, as I mentioned before, you are my gay sensei. You lead me in the ways of the world here. Uh, <laughs> And uh, so we went to a place in Park Slope. What was the name of it that we? Uh, Ginger's Bar. Which one, sir? Ginger's. Ginger's. Thank you. Yes. Yes. In Park Slope, Brooklyn. And we walked in and I think you prepared me a little bit for this, but we looked around and the first thing both of us realized is it's lesbian night here at Ginger's. Okay. All right. Uh, This is uh, not exactly what we intended, but we're both kind of open-minded and supportive of all members of the community. Uh, so we grabbed a corner of the bar and uh, just started talking for an hour and a half. Actually, it was just kind of great, great place to catch up. Like, I was really digging it. Uh, and then after 90 minutes uh, on Lesbian Night is when I realized, holy shit, Lesbian Night has maybe the best soundtrack of any bar I've ever been to in my life. Because they just started playing jam after jam after jam. And I, I've got these like almost tattooed in my mind. Like all of a sudden they start playing. I'm go- I want to dance with somebody. Yes. Uh, yes. Which uh, and I think I told you that night. Like whenever I hear that song now, I think back to, I went to uh pride fest in Chicago for the first time last year as a resident. Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of thing where like six or seven city blocks are just packed shoulder to shoulder with people. Like you are walking like this ocean of shirtless guys, which is, a great new wave band in and of itself, (laughs) but it takes you like a solid 45 minutes to walk from one end of pride fest to the other. And it's only, as I say, like six or seven blocks to do that. And in that 45 minute span of time, I swear to God, I heard, I want to dance with somebody at least six or seven times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And every time, like the entire block just start, just stops and sings. And it is, it is the most joyful sound you will ever hear. So hearing that, it was like, already, I, I am into this. I am digging this. And they followed that up with, uh, with uh, the Bjork song that, that I love. It, uh, it's Oh So Quiet. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think this is the first time you've, you ever saw me in person getting into a song that I, I just feel from my head to my toes uh, that that especially the the first part where she belts, "You fall in love, zing boom, sky up above," and like I, the expression on your face was like taken aback with joy, which it is- was a well, like I literally had never seen because like we've done karaoke before, but yeah. I've never seen you like act out <laughs> the whole thing. It was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a night. And, and they followed that with uh, Blue Monday by New Order. Yes. Um, which is just, you know, a great new wave kind of kind of groove. And then I think at the end of that was when we were close to saying, deciding, okay, it's late enough. We'll probably have to split up and catch each other tomorrow. And just as we were putting our coats on, then they kick in Darling Nikki off the Purple Rain soundtrack. And I said, <laughs> we are not leaving for the next four minutes. That's, yeah. that, which is crazy because yeah. I never heard that song before. Yeah, it's 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 not one of the hits of Purple Rain, but it's definitely a, a notorious track because that's the one that because it mentions I met her in a hotel lobby masturbating with a magazine. That's what got Tipper Gore 
to when she heard her daughter playing Purple Rain to say, mm. this will not do. And that's when she started warning labels on albums. So, mm. yeah, it, it's not like one that's in heavy rotation on radio, but it is one that is infamous because it started that particular movement. But yeah, like I love Lesbian Night, Calvin. Like, when are we going <laughs> to go next? We got lucky. Well, actually, no, I will say the Ginger's Bar in general is a pretty, one of the better of the, like, gay bars. A, because it's in Brooklyn, so, like, I I hate to be like, oh, they're cooler, but, like, usually, like, those kinds of bars that are, like, more lower key or, like, uh, the music's a lot better and, like, they're more neighborhoody and less, like, kind of techno-y and, like, I, like, uh, flashy, I guess, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, it's just been around for so long, and it's, like, because I, I forget that, like, they do have, like, gay male nights as well but like it's mo- more lesbianish. like usually pretty much almost every time i've been there it's been lesbian <laughs> <Or with laughs> and very rarely with gay men so it was definitely like a lot of fun it was a great time and like i always loved that place yeah it was a good hang and uh do you get a sense that uh the community is a lot different that that hangs out in bars that would be in park slope rather than like the more famous ones in the village or in Chelsea? Yeah, it's definitely, I, I feel like it's usually like more of a, a mix in terms of both age and type in terms of like race, like I, and in terms of also like a tra- like trans, at least in my experiences, like, so there's Ginger's Bar and then there's another bar that was, I was hoping we could have gone to, but they sadly closed Excelsior. Hmm. That was in the neighborhood. Well, it used to be about like seven or eight blocks away. And that bar is also really cool. It's a, it, that's more of like just a strictly like gay male bar and they do drag shows as well, but like they have like a really cool like clientele, like a nicer range from like younger to older, but usually skews more towards like a, at least every time I've been there, it's been more of like a thirties to forties demographic, which is nice. And they also like very much vary the kind of music they play. So like there's some nights where it's much more of like a, techno and clubby fanfare but because the bar itself is like kind of small there's no real dance floor so it was it's a lot more like okay some nights it'll be this some nights it'll be prince some nights it'll be like random like 80s rock sometimes it'll be like frankie goes to hollywood like they're really it's like all over the place i like that a lot actually it, it sounds like a place where i'd probably enjoy i'd enjoy it that more because it, it that feels like they're getting really into whatever artist they're playing as opposed to like a, a, I guess a more, for lack of a better term, popular or trendier gay bar where you'd feel like they almost would feel obligated to be playing like the latest Ariana or Troy or whatever the, the new jam is. Exactly. And like, and it's so funny because when I was younger, I used to go to like a lot of, a lot more of like the club scene. So like there are places that were like, um, like Chi-Chi's or Secret or, well, the Eagle, both of the Eagle is way more leather bar. <laughs> it's a lot. I'll put it that way. Although I'm pretty sure there's an Eagle in Chicago as well. Like it's kind of like a pseudo franchise. Like it's known mm-hmm. as like the leather bar. And so they have ones in, um, there's one, one in New York, there's one in Philadelphia, there's one in Baltimore. I think there's one in Florida as well. And I'm pretty sure there's one in California, maybe LA or San Francisco, but yeah, it's basically a leather bar. And like, it's like in the front is usually more like drinking and dancing. And then there's always a back room where other stuff happens um, that are not sports really. Well, some kind of sports, but uh, <laughs> contact sports. Yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we talk about on this podcast. I'll put it back. <laughs> 
see the <laughs> really, really out sports? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too much out sports. Um, yeah. Is there such a thing? Well, perhaps. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're into that, we'll go with it. And no, no yeah. judging and no shaming here. No shame at all. I mean, I, again, I've, I've done my thing there, but like, but for me, like the older I got, the more I was just like, it just is such a young person's thing where it's like, uh, cause I feel like a lot of younger gays are just so much more like, yay, I'm out and we can see people who are like me and yay. And like, and that, and that's wonderful and great. And then like the older you got, the more you're just like, this is nice. It's too loud. Yeah. I don't want people bumping into me. I just want to sit. Like, <laughs> so like, because I'm you, the more into that I get into, the more I'm just like, okay, I can just relax and like go to something that's quieter. And so that's kind of how I ended up more gravitating towards those kinds of bars, like Kendra's bar, Excelsior. Um, there's another place, Macri park. If any of the listeners are in New York city, you should check that one out too. It's pretty nice and like laid back. And there's like a backyard patio area. So it's like a pretty nice place. Nice. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, I, I very much identify with that as a 41 year old man myself at this point that, uh, the, the best gay bar experiences I have in Chicago are inevitably the, uh, the monthly storytelling outspoken show at sidetrack every first Tuesday of the month, I guess, whenever we can start congregating again. But I mean, that's, you talk about the opposite of, of what you were just describing in terms of the the 25 year old twinks yay we're out we're out whatever and yeah that that's all great uh but outspoken you get a huge range of ages and you have definitely you know the 20 25 year olds are there but you also have people who look like they're in their 60s who probably have seen shit that you or i can't even imagine in their lives and it's and outspoken is really just about kind of letting people who've had these amazing sometimes sometimes harrowing experiences get up and share them to what i can only describe as the friendliest audience i have ever seen in my life like i i cannot possibly imagine anybody being more supportive than an outspoken crowd and it, it's such a it's such an affirming community-minded thing it's like it's much less like like you the the uh level of judgment that you usually associate with going out to a bar is just not there it, it's all about yeah the, you are part of this community and this community is here to uplift and support and it's really just a great thing to experience yeah that does sound really amazing and for me i always like that because i feel like in general because of stand-up comedy and because i started so young like I naturally was drawn towards older people. And like, I always had like older friends because when I started, I was 22 and this is before like now comedians started to feel like it's 16 and 17. Mm-hmm. So like when I started like, a lot, like maybe, maybe the median age of like comedian friends I had is like 28. So like, I always was drawn to that anyway. And so when it came to like going out to like, to like the queer scene, like a lot of my friends were like, I, I did it friends who were around my age, but I still was always drawn to like, the older queer folks just because I was like, oh, it's just interesting. And they also just had the life experience and they just had more interesting things to talk about. Like, like just because they had seen so much and a lot of them like were from like smaller towns and like who had moved to New York city specifically to either follow their dreams, escape oppression or both. So like for me, I always tended to thrive more in those crowds anyway, just because I was like, oh, it's interesting because there's so much more substance to you. And like, I feel like, it's so fascinating and like in general like your stories are so much braver i feel than like then i mean not that obviously like there's still obviously a lot of bravery and there's a lot of prejudices that we all face 
mm-hmm. but it's, I mean, it's so much harder. Like I, like I think about like, um, there's this, um, guy who I knew who was, um, grew up in like rural Louisiana and like knew he was gay at like 12. Oh, and God. You, like, and this, he grew up in, I want to say the seventies, seventies or early eighties. Yeah. And that what oh, it, incredibly difficult to like do that and grow up in that place in a rural town no less where i'm sure there's no real like resources for you to reach out to where you're like okay i know this i don't even know basic things in terms of like sexual health much less like uh i would like to have someone to talk to you about like these feelings about like how to cope with that about how to remain safe while also being sexually active so like for me, like I always found those stories so fascinating and so interesting to see like how you coped with your identity and how you came to terms with that. Yeah. And the first thing that I think of when you describe something like, like that to me is, oh my God, I can't even imagine the strength that this person has to, to have, have gone through that. I mean, you know, I, I have vague memories just as a kid of the Reagan era, and I've certainly read a lot about the Reagan era. And then to add rural Louisiana on top of that, <laughs> my God. It's, I mean, it's crazy to me and it's, and it's so like, because I mean, the language wasn't there. The literature wasn't really there. It was like, Mm -hmm. you had was like Paul Lind or like Charles Lesson Riley. And like, that was, I mean, they were out obviously, but like, it was never discussed on television. It was always like, they're just confirmed bachelors and they haven't found the right (laughs) one. They know what they're fine. (laughs) He's not gay. He just wears an ascot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I can't even imagine the the level of courage it takes to to summon to be able to to realize your true self in that kind of environment. That you know, it it, it was hard enough for me to come out at at uh, the ripe old age of thirty five, and this was coming out at a time well after you know the "It Gets Better" campaign was mm-hmm. was a popular thing. Uh, that was I, I still the, one of the scariest things I've ever been through in my life, and. And again, to, to be to to surround that level of fear with like what I can only assume is the constant active hostility toward toward who you are, I mean, yeah. just just to survive is is a victory in and of itself. It really is, and it's so hard. And I feel like even for like people, I guess who come out in our generation, it's hard because even though it's like technically more permitted and I feel like now like as now as people who come out like I was saying this same age it's a lot more permissive because I feel like parents now understand and like again the literature and the language is just out there like I feel like even still like first in terms of first coming out like I feel like a lot of the language was just a very like we accept that as long as you don't practice it like so right. it's kind of like being religious in secret which makes <laughs> no sense <Yeah. laughs> you don't want to be like I'll, I'll just practice this and then just never talk to you about it. Like that's not how that should be or go. That's weird. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make then, sense. Yeah. And then have to put on the facade and, and the fakeness every time you go out in public or anytime you have to visit relatives other than the people who, who know directly just to have to keep living that lie over and over and mm-hmm. have your parents then try to support that lie in front of you. It's, it's just yeah. got to be a galling thing too. Uh, yeah. We're really, uh, very, very fortunate, both of us, to be in a time where, you know, a good number of parents at least get what you're supposed to do and get how to be supportive now. And even even in saying that, though, you have to realize that, and, and I think this probably was something that you probably went through coming out as, as well as I did, that uh, that even knowing, I, I knew my parents would have, been, would have been supportive completely. And you know that most parents are 
are that way now. But you also know that there is a certain subset of parents who still aren't and are strongly not. And there's always, even as irrational as it may be to, when you think about these people that you know, there's always that little fear in the back of your mind. If what if mine aren't that way, what if mine are part of the group that aren't going to be that? And, and that is, you, you don't know until you throw it out there. And that's, that's why it took, you know, from the time where, I started accepting myself as a gay man. Uh, it still took, I would say, a year and a half to two years before I finally told mom and dad and, and my sisters. Uh, yeah. And I, I told you before I told them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. And it does make sense. It's hard because I, mean, I also feel like uh, I wish I could remember who the writer was, but there's a writer who talked about how, like, it's such a it's so hard because it's such a, like, weird personal process well not weird weird is the wrong word but it's such a an involved personal process because you also a, have to come to terms with yourself and then you also have to come to terms with like what that means for your identity because we grow up in a um a society where basically the norm is so geared towards you get married you have your kids you have your job and so, like, for me, like, I always liken it even to, like, in, to a certain sense of, like, doing stand-up comedy. Like, for me, those two things always went hand-in-hand. Hand. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, again, because I kind of both things happened to me, happened for me around the same time. But it's also the same thing, too, where it's, like, if you're doing stand-up comedy, you're kind of, like, okay, my lifestyle is not going to be normal. Like, I'm not going to have a nine-to-five job relationships are going to be hard i'm not going to have the same kinds of like there's going to be no real like we're going to go on vacation in hawaii like that's not a thing you're going to do when you do <laughs> and you're going on to omaha yeah <laughs> i'm like i'm gonna go to a gas station in illinois and but i mean i feel like because it's so it's so hard because in society you're so indoctrinated with like, this is like the normative lifestyle that you're expected to lead. Is that like for you to have a modicum of success, you needed to, you need to like have a high paying job as a lawyer or a doctor or an accountant or something of that nature. And then you're expected to like have a wife, have kids, buy a house and do this and do that. It's so hard to adjust and deal with. So like, it's such a personal journey because for yourself, you need to be like, Oh no, I'm not going to fit into this norm. What does that mean for me? Am I bad? Am I wrong? And I know for me, I spent a long time feeling that way where I was like, Oh no, I fucked up because I didn't do the things that society told me to do or that like television at the time, you know, all TV sitcoms were like that normative kind of stuff, like family matters or like, you know, step by step or things like that, where it's like, you're expected to have this life. So you need to be like, okay, I'm not going to have this life. What does that mean? Okay. The only things I know about gay culture are like Will and Grace. <laughs> like, and I'm not going to shit on Will and Grace at all, but you know, it's clearly you can have lifestyles outside of that, but because there was so little <laughs> out there, you're like, okay, so it's Will and Grace with Tales of the City. And I don't know what the fuck I'm going to fit into. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I'm even uh, a couple years older than, than you. Uh, so, you know, Will and Grace for me, I think was like maybe end of high school, certainly early college when that mm-hmm. was most popular. So when I first started having these feelings of attraction to guys back in late junior high, early high school, which I didn't want to acknowledge at all, uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, my, my closest point of comparison was Nathan Lane. Oh, and, God, right. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's, I, 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 no offense to obviously one of the great actors of our generation, but I didn't want to be Nathan Lane in, yeah. in any aspect. And I couldn't see how, uh, I, I couldn't imagine kind of similar to what you were uh, talking about with yourself. I couldn't imagine for many years, any future life that I was leading without dating and eventually marrying a woman. Yeah. Uh, like, and to the point where in college, I think when I was able to like recognize like one of the girls I was in a show with that, Oh, she is definitely attractive and good looking. I kind of thought, well, okay, this must be my crush. And I have to dive headlong into that. And I never, I mean, I, it was very, and the most unrequited crush of all time, possibly, <laughs> except for my current crush on Tom Daly, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> But it was one that I, I convinced myself to obsess over without actually doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, but I, I guess I kind of decided that that was the way that life was supposed to be that way. So I had to kind of put effort into that. Uh, and it, that, that sense of this was what my life was supposed to be lasted until, you know, at least early 30s, uh, until I kind of hit a point where, just the level of attraction for certain guys was just too much to ignore and too much to, to, to deny at that point anymore. Uh, and then there came a time where I realized that uh, there was somebody in the New York comedy scene who I had a thing for. And I realized <laughs> that is a definite crush on that particular guy. And I think, and, and so I, I, I guess for me, the difference between like that many, many years of just assuming that at some point I was going to be part of the norm versus realizing who I really was, was I realized that there was a moment that changed from just having these feelings of attraction to guys versus wanting these feelings for attraction to guys. Yes. And that's when I started accepting that this is part of who I am. And that's when I started saying it to myself. And eventually that's when I started telling people, uh, yeah. Like like yourself, uh, <laughs> and uh, was it a surprise when I told you? Uh, I was surprised. I didn't know. Well, because I mean, I obviously knew you for a while, and I mean, you. I guess I never really talked about any of your attracted to either way. But like for me, I always like. I feel like I was for a while. I was always such a private person about that. That about like who I was attracted to, just in general, like specific people. That I was always like, ah, eh, whatever, like. So, like, I just knew you as a person. Like, I never <laughs> thought about either way on the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> when you told me, I was surprised. Um, but then the more you talked to me, I was like, oh, okay, I guess I can see it. Because I guess for me, like, it's hard because I'm not, I'm never surprised anymore, if that makes any sense. Just because <laughs> I've, <clears throat> I guess I've always kind of thought of sexuality on the spectrum. Like, even when I was, when I first started, like, learning about, like, queer stuff like um like when I was in college I went to a pretty liberal college and like I had quite a few teachers who were queer of some sort and so like we and because I was an English major like I always the classes I took were a lot of like non straight white guy literature <laughs> for <laughs> lack of a better term so like I took like um an African-American literature class an Asian-American literature class I took a critical race theory class I took like, a gender class that was like about people of all genders who were writers and because of that, like, it had really opened up my mind to, like, 
you know, like even still, like people, even there are people who are, I guess, more straight than gay, people who are more gay than straight. But like, I would just read all these stories and like listen to all these like tales about people who like would have same sex encounters or opposite sex encounters and were like, no, that's cool. I'm not into that. And so like, I had always been expanded to like a, people are just people and I don't really care who you have sex with as long as you have fun and are safe and don't rape anyone. Please don't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, not to be controversial, I'm very anti-rape. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so like, I was not surprised. I was, I was taken aback. I wasn't like shocked, like, oh my God, what? Hmm. <laughs> you're such a man. Like, not that you're not. <laughs> I, I would have loved a cartoon reaction like that. It's the eyes spring out. <laughs> Just like Mrs. Garrett, like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I don't think I've told anybody after that if that were the case. Holy cow. <laughs> because it's always like, because I feel like you just can't tell like i feel like you, you can again because you can be queer and have so many interests that people would consider heterosexual i never thought of you that way and i never think of anyone that way who tells me that they're queer so yeah i, I guess to a certain extent that that makes a lot of sense because and this is for the most part an interior life until you make the conscious decision that you have to share it with people because that's yeah. who you are and you want them to know you better Mm-hmm. Did uh, did you uh, was was there a point where you can pinpoint as to when you decided that this has to go? This is this is when I want these feelings as opposed to just experiencing these feelings. Well, it's funny for me because for a while, like I was, I feel like I was more kind of quietly out, um, hmm. and then I remembered it was actually. Um, so I was more like quietly out and I never really like my idea was always like, I would never fully come out until I found someone who I really liked and wanted to. And I felt like, okay, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person, like obviously I'm going to be like out, out. Um, but otherwise I always thought that I, like, even though I knew, I still thought of it as like, Oh, this is just more of a thing or not a thing, but more of like a, I'm never going to find the right person. And then when I uh, actually met the guy I was with for two and a half years, well, who you know. Um, <laughs> Good dude. Yeah. <laughs> he, uh, that was actually when I really started coming to terms with myself about it. And mm-hmm. I think it helped because he was, he was older and he was out already and like, was very out and confident with himself. And he actually came out later in life. He came out when he was 30. Mm-hmm. So that That's really, late, please. Amateur. Yeah. No. <laughs> I know how passe, but um, <laughs> at 30 years old, I was still looking through old swimsuit issues. <laughs> That's closeted. My friend out here buying men's health magazines to push up. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but he, in a lot of ways, it helped me come to terms with myself and also just helping to come to terms with the fact that like, even whether or not this relationship will work out, no matter what, like these are things that are not going to go away. And this is a real and significant part of myself. So I'm going to have to just deal with it, acknowledge it and just internalize it. I guess if that makes any sense, Mm -hmm. like it felt less of like a, like you kind of like how you mentioned before, like of a play acting and more of a like, no, this is an actual, this isn't a mask. This is my actual face. And so that kind of helped me to do that. 
and like before when I first started, like when I was on stage performing, like I would never really do like gay jokes really. And it wasn't only until like I was with him that I was like, no, like this is who I am and I feel out and I feel more comfortable telling these kinds of jokes. So hmm. that's, that's beautiful. And then, yeah. and honestly, that's uh, a really uh, like heartwarming kind of way of describing that part, particular part of your life, I think. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> on this particular podcast. Wow, who would have thought that was coming? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm kind of struck a little bit. <laughs> I am shook, Calvin Cato. Oh, I didn't mean to make a whole like very special episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's one to grow on, kids. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I also got very lucky in that regard in that he was just, in a lot of ways, very good for me and very good in terms of helping me with that. And I mean, obviously I know there are a lot of other people who don't get to have that per se, but like, it's always nice. I think it's always nice too when you can have like a gay sensei, I guess. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> yes, it is. I speak from experience. Yes, it is my friend. Even if, even if it's more asking the gay sensei questions of, so how do you start a conversation on Grinder again? <laughs> well, the answer is dick pic. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how I grew as a person and came into myself. Yes. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's really, you, you talk about what you want out of a relationship. That right there, what you just described, is it. That someone who helps you find a part of yourself that you didn't know could be that beautiful and not only encourages it, but like helps it flower within you. Like that is, that is a genuinely beautiful thing to have, I think. And that's a great way of working on that period of your life, too. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's something that I'm always really grateful about. And, I mean, I still – like, we still keep in touch, which is good. Like, I actually messaged him because of the quarantine to be like, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Because, you know, everything's crazy. And he's like, yes, obviously. <laughs> We're all on lockdown. He's working from home, so that's really good. But, yeah, it's, it is it is really good. And it's always very healthy. And it's always good to be able to – come to terms with yourself in that way. So, yeah. And that's the difference I think between you and, and me is that you're you message him to check in and make sure that everything is going well with him. And I think I would message him to see if he wants to come on and talk about the twins. <laughs> you should actually ask him though. He would be great. Yeah. To talk about. Oh, yeah. I, I actually probably will in about a month or so. I've got an idea for uh, a podcast with him that I think uh, might, might end up being good. Uh, but that's, that's a teaser for further down the road. Uh, so <laughs> Transitioning a little bit uh, to a little bit lighter fare. Uh, so right, at, yeah. <laughs> at the time that uh, that I was coming out, and this is, I guess, the closest thing we're going to get to actually relating sports into this podcast again a little bit. But uh, I had uh, like six months before I started telling anybody that I liked guys was when Tom Daly posted his coming out video on mm -hmm. YouTube. And I remember that was a time where it was still very much kind of the internal getting used to this idea of who I actually was. And I found it, I think by just a random article that ended, that appeared on HuffPost queer voices at one point. And I remember watching the video and seeing him kind of go through this process uh, and thinking that, first of all, this is one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen in my life. Uh, but also kind of inspiring to see like how vulnerable he was letting himself be. Like, I didn't even know who he was at this point, but seeing someone just kind of who was that scared in the moment, but still being that honest uh, was kind of like a, 
this is something to file away for later as, as something to use for inspiration, maybe. Um, <laughs> and um, so I guess I wanted to ask you, did you have any like public figure like that that was also just kind of there as an example when you needed it at, at the time when you were going through this kind of thing? Yeah, it's so funny. I never... I, I never consciously thought of it, but at the time, so um, there's this writer, David Sedaris, who uh, he wrote like We Talk Pretty One Day, that was when that got really big, and then he did One Year of Golf in Flames, Naked, Barrel Fever. And it's so funny because when I was in college, like that was when I, so originally when I went to college, I was studying to be a doctor. So I was pre med, I was going to do the whole nine yards, and it just wasn't really working out. And so I always was into English and I found like a bunch of like old like writings. Like I used to write all these short stories and ideas and stuff like that longhand. And I remembered um, a friend because I was like writing short stories that were basically personal essays. My friend was like, you should check out David Sedaris. His writing is a lot like yours. And so I remembered like picking, buying the book and reading it and going, wow, this guy's really great and funny. And it took me, like, at least two or three essays. I was just really, like, blind. Like, I just didn't realize he was gay until, like, the third essay. And I was like, uh-huh. oh. Yeah. <laughs> He's subtle about it, you know. That, that you really have to kind of read between all yeah. the scenes of gay sex he talks about. <laughs> you know, it's very, very subtle, you know. It's weird. <laughs> it is a gay anal. Did, so you're did, just, did, oh, the, uh, I believe one of the chapters is called I Like Guys. So, yeah, I can see how you're <laughs> That that uh, that uh, subtext there, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really interesting, just because like it was he was like I had known of like gay novelists, like I mean, obviously it was Truman Capote and Gore Vidal, but I remember reading his stuff, and it was the first person who I had ever read who like talked about it in such a frank and relatable manner. And also, I guess because I mean, obviously we're not in the same generation per se, but because we were of a younger generation. I was able to just relate a lot more to what he was writing about. Hmm. And like, I just remember more and more, I would, I would just obsessively reread and reread his, like his collection. And then it made me buy his other collections. And then it got me to this other writer, Simon Rakoff, who's like a, a friend of Sedaris's or David Rakoff, sorry. Um, and who's a friend of Sedaris's. And then I was reading Rakoff's work and I was like, wow, like, I'm just really into this and I really like identify with it and I get it and I get what it's like when you're like, I guess, kind of a gay artist. And at the time they were both like struggling artists in, you know, New York city, <laughs> which I guess you could just say is an artist in New York city. <laughs> yeah. But, pretty much like <laughs> 75% of all New Yorkers. Yeah. Pretty much. And now with the quarantine, it's like 205%. <laughs> yeah. The entire, <laughs> <laughs> including uh mayor de blasio yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i heard that was someone that always like helped me kind of helped unlock a key for me in terms of like oh i kind of get it and i get what this life means hmm. yeah if, in terms of like okay and i do understand what these thoughts are i understand what these feelings are I also understand that I would have to fit into some sort of weird or some sort of stereotypical norm. I can just be who I want, but this is who I am. And so that was something that really helped me. Yeah. And Sedaris, uh, and this is, you know, something, just a kind of a personal theory of mine, and I'm coming from, at it from a pretty biased standpoint as a comic. Uh, but I think it helps to be funny, to help. To, you really relate better to somebody who is making you laugh, I think. It just... It's a way of kind of making it 
more entertaining to kind of see that mindset, I think. And it, it's also, I mean, laughter is always kind of in a, in a way, a bit of identification in some way with what someone yeah. is going through and not to get, you know, too intellectual about something that that's, you know, just funny, but if he's, if he's got you with the entertaining and, and, and humorous writing, then the stuff that's more real that he talks about himself, that if you identify with that as well, it's like you've almost established a higher connection because he's, he's gotten to this emotional part of yourself that, that enjoys the, the technique and, and his ability to, to, to give you that kind of, uh, that kind of laughter response. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it sounds like a very English professor way of going about analyzing that, but uh, nonetheless, we're both English majors, so that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I will say, too, that, uh, I'm sorry? Oh, no, I was going to say, but it is really true, because I feel like at the time, pretty much the only gay stories I knew were all, like, tragic endings, like Brokeback Mountain, or, like, Kissing mm-hmm. Jessica's Night. Like, it was all so, like being gay is great and then it's going to be depressing because your lover's going to die and <laughs> you're going to be alone and you're going to have to get married or like move to a farm in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Like there was no uplifting stories that, I, that at least that I had access to before I was reading Me Talk Pretty one day where it's like, oh, you're, you obviously went through hardships. It was very hard to be gay in the South, but then you moved yeah. around and now you have a boyfriend, you live in France, like you're, <laughs> you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that is also possible that, that yeah you can have a happily ever after and that's important to know as as you say because yeah. I mean what what's the point of pursuing the love of your life if you're just both going to get AIDS and die I mean exactly yeah. <laughs> like rent is not the be all end all so you're like okay great <laughs> there are other stories yes well, whatever your happy ending happens to be that uh, mm-hmm. yeah that's it and I, I guess getting to follow Tom Daly as he kind of became a frequent blogger after coming out. And that for me was, first of all, seeing him kind of grow into a confident gay man was in and of itself inspiring because I went and rewatched his coming out video this afternoon kind of to prep for this. And it's so dramatically different from the way he is now. Like the, He is so incredibly comfortable and confident in himself on camera and so at ease and relaxed now. And watching the coming out video, like you notice like his eyes are, you just see like, the fear that's kind of behind it and that he doesn't know what his future is going to be and what this video is going to produce for him, but he's nonetheless kind of pushing forward with it. And you see that he's, he's much quieter and his, his, and much less, less life in his voice when he, when he's talking about this. And nonetheless, he's still, he's still coming out and, and still doing a brave thing. Uh, and I guess as his videos progressed and as, as I started kind of entering that part of the process myself, I got to see, you know, obviously one of the most attractive men in the world, but also someone who had gone through this and had taken this harrowing step himself and was now living such a better and such a more enjoyable life. And and you could see was was happy to to share with everyone the things that he was going through as an out gay man and and realizing that, yeah, that that was a possibility that if if I were to take the step myself, you know, Obviously, not being a gold medal winning diver and one of the <laughs> people on earth is probably out of the question at this point. But uh, but to have that kind of happy future myself was was also important. Uh, and as a side note, it also taught me that uh, I can be into some weird shit every now and again because uh, uh, 
My, my favorite Tom Daly video, I got to bring this up. Uh, there was one from a couple years ago where he does like a joint video with, I guess, a YouTube drag queen. And they're going out on the streets of, uh, of streets of Hollywood dressed as Kermit and Miss Piggy. And, oh, that's Willem. Uh, I'm sorry? Willem. Yes, yes, Willa. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I saw this video. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> and through that, I discovered that when a ripped man is made up to look like a Muppet, that does it for me, Calvin Cato. <laughs> Holy shit. And I, I don't know what that means. Very, he was very attractive in that video. I, d- I definitely remember seeing this. Because, yeah, Willem is um, a... Willem's a wonderful drag queen who I follow, and I follow um, his videos a lot. Willem's super funny, and I remember this video you're talking about. Yes, sorry. <laughs> it is. I mean, but he was a very hot Kermit. Yeah, uh, I'm getting feelings just just describing it to you, but like I, I don't even know what necessarily that means. Like I, I went just as a pure experiment. Uh, I went to Pornhub yesterday and just entered Muppet in the search engine, and there's nothing. There's nothing. <laughs> It's it's a Gary Gullen bit of when you enter something into Pornhub and you dump Pornhub like that. That's it right there. So I yeah, that's that's just twisted. But again, I oh my god, this I know this shocks me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I knew we'd get to something finally. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh my right. god so, uh, yeah. let, let's uh, wrap this up with book club you wanna uh, I know you were talking Sedaris earlier were, were you going to wreck a Sedaris book or uh, well, um, well originally yes uh, now I'm trying to think there was another book oh boy I'm trying to remember now because it's sipping wait I'm gonna I'm sorry I'm gonna cheat and look at my notes because I have I, I can go into mine while you're looking at that if you need a sec here uh, so this week, uh, usually we're doing baseball books here, but again, because this is a special episode, I'm going to do an LGBTQ book. Uh, I'm going to toss out Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. Oh, I don't is, know that. Yeah, it's, it's one I discovered uh, on a recommendation shelf at my favorite indie bookstore, Unabridged Books in Chicago. Support your indie bookstores, by the way. Uh, yes, they need it, especially yeah, at this time. Especially now. Uh, and Unabridged has like paragraph-long recommendations for everything their staff likes. And so this one in particular just kind of caught my eye because it's it's a it's a gay romance, uh, but it's also you can tell that Casey McQuiston, the author, wrote it kind of in response to certain current events because it's set in a alternate universe 2020 where the first female president in the history of the United States is running for re-election. So what we could have been, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> uh, you can tell she was working through some things, and I don't blame her a bit. Uh, but it's the story uh, during this re-election campaign where her son, the first son of the United States, uh, falls in love with the Prince of Wales. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's the kind of thing where they start out hating each other and then all of a sudden, uh, 120 pages in, start having sex. Um, oh. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where when I describe the plot to you, it sounds like, you know, kind of trashy romance, but for gays. But it's the kind of book where... You're reading it, and I'm thinking, I like all of these characters. They're all really interesting people, and I am sincerely rooting for those two to get together. And if that's not the definition of a great romance narrative, I don't know what is. And, uh, yeah, and it's it's also, again, kind of just a great what if, if, if we had this particular universe 
maybe things would have been just a little bit happier for a lot of a lot of the community. Uh, and it's also, as I mentioned, uh, it does have quite a few gay sex scenes, and it's the kind of thing where you flip a couple pages and realize, oh, this is still going, and I'm <laughs> quite okay with this. So yeah, it, it, it's actually it's a really good read. I've been recommending it to a whole lot of people and been getting universal positives on it. So at some point, highly recommend it to you as well. Nice. I wrote it down because I will definitely look it up because I'm trying to like, again, because I have so much free time on my hands, I'm trying to like read a lot more just to keep my mind simulated and active. So I'm not watching like TV 24 seven, basically. Yeah. Um, cool. I, well, and I feel bad cause I was going to recommend, this is older. Well, I was going to, A, David Sedaris recommend him, yeah. but also this other person, Augustine Burroughs. Oh, you know, heard, yes. <clears throat> He's most famous for writing that book, Writing with Scissors, where he talks about like growing up in a very chaotic household and how he lost his virginity at age 13 to an older man and hmm. then ran away to New York. Um, although that book is really good, the book that I would actually recommend is Dry, which it actually talks about how um, he came to New York and he basically was, even though he had a wonderful, successful ad executive job, he became a huge alcoholic and drug user. And it kind of talks about like his road back to sobriety and like learning how to basically function as an adult. Um, and it is really good. And it's, it's very interesting, at least for me as someone who ha- you, has suffered from like more serious substance, substance abuse issues, mm-hmm. uh, not like issue, well issues, but, <laughs> but <laughs> it is, it's just really interesting to like both read it and like read about like sobriety and also to read about sobriety from a queer perspective, mm-hmm. like how to learn how to be normal, especially when you a grow up in a chaotic household and then also add a level of gayness on top of that, mm-hmm. how to learn how to be like, no, I can be a functioning adult and have all these pieces of my life together. So I would recommend that it's very good. It's very well written and well edited. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, I will definitely look that, uh, read that myself as well. Dry it's called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, yeah, I've heard of Augustine Burroughs, and it's interesting, your description of that kind of makes it sound like almost what we were talking about five minutes ago, like one of those narratives where it feels like it's going to be a gay narrative that just leads to the saddest possible ending, but he pulls himself out of it. And that's also a really kind of, it's a different kind of uplift, but also, I think, a much needed uplift in many ways, too. Exactly. Excellent. Well, Calvin Cato, you have been a much-needed uplift for this entire podcast, my friend. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug while I got you here? Um, no, well, that's it. Just Playable Characters Podcast. I'm still doing that. Still is up and running. We have episodes at least through the end of April, and then we'll see what happens after that, because it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. And, it's a good way to get through it. Exactly. Oh, and before I forget, I also do another podcast that is kind of on hiatus right now again because of the quarantine but it's called professional friends and it's uh one where i do with carolina hidalgo fellow comedian oh nice yeah, i love carolina uh, me her john bavacqua and anna paratori and we just talk both mainly about like lifestyle and queer issues so playable nice. characters oh blah playable characters <laughs> so, <laughs> professional friends, <laughs> professional friends. Yeah. nice so an entire an entire podcast about lifestyle and queer issues man i can't imagine ever doing something like that <laughs> I know. What is this? What, yeah. What's this? What's going on here? Uh, this has been great, my friend. Thanks for doing it. No problem. Thank you so much for doing this and having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure.